Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 164, recorded on November 22nd, 2020. I'm Chris. And I'm Wes. Hello, Wes. And we should say happy birthday to the GIMP project, which turned 25 years old this weekend. Never looking better, GIMP. All right, Wes, let's do the news and let's start with YouTube DL back up on GitHub. And aren't we glad? Now, if you don't remember, GitHub received a controversial DMCA takedown request from the Recording Industry Association of America, better known as the RIAA, way back on October 23rd. Yes, I do recall. We were rather upset about it, if I recall. (laughs) Indeed we were. Um, The DMCA takedown letter back then from the RIAA argued that YouTube DL was being used to circumvent the technological protection of streaming services such as YouTube. And then they went on to argue also that it could reproduce and distribute music videos and sound recordings without authorization. That was like the big, oh, my gosh, what? But really, maybe not so much. Well, yeah, let's be a little more specific. The RIAA used Section 1201 of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, or the DMCA, to claim that YouTube DL was breaking copyright by providing a tool to circumvent copyrighted material, even if... YouTube DL itself didn't contain any copyright infringing code directly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, here's what happened. Um, just a little bit after last week's show, GitHub said that YouTube DL did not actually break that section 1201 of the DMCA, and it cited a letter that it had, it received, GitHub had received from the EFF, and the, they did a fantastic job of of doing a great defense for YouTube DL. And I think they played a big role in helping explain to both GitHub and maybe future interested parties in the technical aspects of this case. And I think maybe save the day a little bit. You really have to give it to the EFF. The lawyers argued that YouTube DL could never be taken down because of Section 1201 at all, because YouTube DL itself doesn't actually circumvent any kind of copyright protection system in the first place. Yeah, I like this quote from from their letter. As a federal court recently ruled, one does not circumvent access control by using a publicly available password. And that's really what it came down to. You know, the code in YouTube DL that was, quote unquote, circumventing the copyright protections. Well, really, it was all just relying on public information that you get when you visit YouTube.com. <laughs> Computers are hard, Wes, and it's hard for the RIAA to understand it. It always has been. We also talked a little bit in our coverage about GitHub's response to this and if they could have done things a little differently. And it does seem like they're going to make some changes. Yeah, I think they noticed that maybe they weren't quite prepared for this particular case. And they've now decided to establish a $1 million developer defense fund. That the company plans to use to protect developers against unwarranted DMCA Section 1201 takedown claims. So, so this is pretty specific, I think. Yeah, it's sort of like um, it's sort of like plugging a leak instead of fixing it. Though, really, what would be amazing is if instead of a million dollars, if Microsoft could invest ten million dollars in just getting the DMCA fixed. But I, this is a great first step. It sort of felt that when GitHub received this notice, you know. They felt like they didn't have a lot of options. They just took it down to play it safe, figuring, all right, I guess this gets sorted out in court. But now they're going to hire technical and legal experts, along with some independent specialists, who will from now on review all DMCA Section 1201 takedown claims going forward to ensure they're compliant with the DMCA and to protect open source developers from needless litigation. So presumably, and we, we can't say until this happens, but presumably this this board would have just found that, no, YouTube DL is not infringing, 
We're not doing anything. This is a complicated issue, these DMCA takedowns, because as you and I found in our own research for the show, there are established, well-known open source projects that actually use DMCA takedown to maybe stop somebody who's taken a fork of the project and closed it up and is charging weird money for it or is embedding spyware or maybe brand stealing. There are legitimate uses for projects and so GitHub didn't want to just completely throw out the whole system, but they wanted to at least try to give the developers a fighting chance, it seems like, from this. In most cases, they're not going to pull it off the web unless it's absolutely necessary. Like, they're going to try their best to just maybe remove an infringing component or contact the developer directly and get them in some sort of dialogue first. Those are all really positive improvements. Uh, but it just seems like this maybe just isn't the right tool for this function, for what people are looking like, looking. The DMCA is just not the right tool for this particular function. I think we've seen that there's a lot of problems with it over the years. Yeah. Unfortunately, little to no action to fix it. Very nice, though, to see YouTube DL back up and online. And so far from what we can tell, they didn't have to remove any cipher algorithms or anything that was all of, all that core to the project. They just had to get rid of those example videos that were copyrighted music. Right. They had some of those test cases set up to downloaded copyrighted music. Those are gone. And uh, with that, they're back online. There have been rumors of a $6 billion Seuss IPO this week. It all got kicked off by Bloomberg, who's reporting that EQT is planning an IPO for SUSE. If you don't recall, EQT is a Swedish-based private equity firm. You might not recall, because over the years, SUSE has had more than a few owners. First, it was acquired by Novell in 2004. Then, Attachmate, with some Microsoft funding, bought Novell and SUSE in 2010. This was followed in short order in 2014 when Microfocus purchased Attachmate, and SUSE was spun off as an independent division. Then, EQT finally got involved and purchased SUSE from Microfocus for $2.5 billion in March of 2019. $2.5 billion, which means that if this IPO turns out to be legitimate, and if it does turn out to be approximately $6 billion, EQT, well, they're doing pretty well for themselves. And it seems like it's possible. SUSE has been pretty successful under EQT, and Q3 revenue, reported in September 2020, increased 14% year over year. It seems they've also had a pretty big jump in whale clients, you know, clients that are worth more than a million dollars, 35% increase there, and a 50% jump in bookings year over year. So they potentially are doing really well. And if the feedback is any indication I get on Coder Radio, there's more people using SUSE than ever because my inbox is crying from all of the lizards telling me how great it is. But Bloomberg has been saying that this IPO is just in the very, very, very early stages and nothing really may even come of this. But Susu was kind of coy when asked about it. Of Folks course. Said, nah, we, uh, we don't comment on these kinds of things. But it'd be pretty great to see it. I mean, Susa has done really well for themselves recently. They also, didn't they just uh, acquire Rancher Labs? Indeed they did. Yeah. I mean, they're stepping up their game. They do really well in the European Union. Maybe not as well as in the States, so we don't talk well, about it. We them. hear about it a little less over here. But you know what? I like that there's another big enterprise competitor in the Linux space out there. And maybe an IPO could be a new steady state for SUSE. I guess we'll see. Well, speaking of revenue, Ubuntu Maker Canonical Holdings Limited recently submitted their UK financial report. Now, this is for last year. This is for December 31st, 2019, the pre-COVID era times. And they generated around 22% more revenue than 2018. But the maybe important note here is they seem to have still operated at a loss, albeit more narrowly than in prior years. 
Yeah, the documents show their 2019 revenue at 119 million U.S. dollars, up from 97 million the prior year. That means their operating loss came in at just $2 million, which, hey, that's a lot better than the $11 million for 2018 and similar losses in recent years. Yeah, now remember, these numbers are a little out of date as we're almost in December of 2020. But at the time of this information submitted, Canonical's average headcount for 2018 was 473, which is up prior from the 437 the year before. And they added close to 40 more employees, but that's still down from their 500-plus headcount before the restructuring that uh, happened a few years ago. The report does note some concerns over the COVID-19 pandemic, but that's primarily from impacts to their clients, not directly to Canonical themselves, since by and large, they've got a global distributed workforce that's already working from home. Long story short, they anticipate weathering the current COVID-19 climate just fine. Linode.com slash LAN. Go there to get a $100 60-day credit towards your new account. That's right. I said Linode.com slash LAN. $100 60-day credit. Linode is our cloud hosting provider. They should probably be yours, too. Not only are they entrenched members of the Linux community who support things like Linux Fest Northwest, which I really appreciate, or our beloved Kubuntu project, but they're also just Linux users themselves. They started in 2003 when they saw the direction things were going in the Linux kernel. They saw what the features were going to be with virtualization before anybody else did. Three years before AWS was even a twinkle in Bezos's eye, Linode was out there. And now they're the largest independent cloud provider, and they're supporting your here humble podcast. How about that? I mean, sure are. Isn't that pretty cool? They're, they're dedicated to offering the best virtualized cloud computing. If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. And you can use Linode to learn. If you want to build something up from scratch and build it and run it all yourself, you can absolutely do that. And they will not hold you back in any way. Not like some of the entry-level service providers. They're going to give you the tools to get to the root of the entire machine. But sometimes you want it easy. And I did that recently. I did it. I've been debating for months, months, um, maybe even a year, about trying out this AzuraCast which is this big one-stack open-source radio station for the web that lets you manage DJ accounts and set up automated streaming schedules. It's like everything you need for a radio station in one open-source package. And I've, I've debated setting it up, like I said, for a long, long time. But I finally did it this weekend because I was on Linode and I saw in their app marketplace they have a one-click deployment. And it deploys things like Liquid Soap, IceCast, Shoutcast, Nginx, PHP, InfluxDB, Redis, all stuff that I would have had to set up. And it does it in a single click. It took like 10 seconds. And one of the things that's really cool about Linode is because they get you guys is whenever they can, they try to give you options on the underlying distro. So like for this particular one-click deployment, I had the option of deploying it on Debian or Ubuntu 20.04, which to match some of our other cloud instances, I chose Ubuntu 20.04, which is fantastic. And now, now I've got a Ubuntu 20.04 dedicated CPU, four CPU cores, eight gigs of RAM in Dallas, Texas, that's set up and ready to be an online radio station that our community could use. And we could have community DJs and the luck, the LUP lug could tie into all of it. I mean, there's so much potential, something I was thinking about doing for so long and with that one click, I finally pulled the trigger and I did it. And now it, the potential is kind of limitless. And that's that's just scratching the surface of what Linode is capable of, just scratching the surface. And they cost 30 to 50% less than major cloud providers like AWS or Google or your Azure. So you get a real nice balance of super nice modern technology features, a great dashboard to manage it all, a good citizen in the Linux community, price to performance ratio, uptime, support is fantastic. Like it's all there. 
and you can just get a little taste of it at linode.com slash lan. Get a $100 60-day credit towards your new account. That's linode.com slash lan. With the introduction of Apple's new M1 chip, Docker's facing a few technical hurdles to get Docker Desktop running nicely on these new Macs. Not only is there a brand new architecture, but there's also a new hypervisor framework. Yeah, and I think probably a lot of us are familiar with this Rosetta technology that Apple has released. Rosetta 2 allows ARM Macs to run x86 code. But that doesn't get you all the way to getting Docker and Docker Desktop up and running on the Mac. Under the hood of Docker Desktop, there's an actual virtual machine on the Mac side. They do that to... um, I mean, you got to run Linux somehow, right? I mean, I guess they do that because, yeah, there's no other way to run it on macOS, and there's no other way to do it on Apple hardware. But now, with the M1 chip and Big Sur, there's this new hypervisor framework. They apparently will have to replumb Docker Desktop to this new hypervisor framework, which does feature M1 acceleration, but means new code. Right. So you might actually have the Docker side in the user land of macOS running, but then you've got to connect that all up and integrate the changes from the changes to the hypervisor. Yeah. There's also the little issue of their CI pipeline doesn't have any ARM Macs in it yet. Oh, right. I mean, how do you test it if you're not running on M1s? They know it in here that they have 25 Mac minis that they use for automated testing of Docker desktop. (laughs) Isn't that funny? Yeah. Although it doesn't sound like they got any um, of the ARM developer machines. They say now that Apple's made the announcement, we can get some hardware in, which is... An interesting aside. So you have the hypervisor framework. Of course, you have the CI pipeline that needs to have some ARM Macs in it to do testing. But there's also that wiggling issue of the, all of the underpinning, uh, underpinning open source projects that Docker relies on, like Go. Yeah, things like Go for the back end of Docker Desktop. That's what it's written in. Uh, and Electron for the Docker dashboard, where you can go and view all the Docker Desktop content. Now, These projects are hard at work getting that sorted out, but that has to happen, get tested, and then actually integrate it into Docker Desktop before you'll see it running anytime soon on your M1 laptop. Meanwhile, I'm over here running containers like it's just no big thing on my Linux box. (laughs) Purism has finally began shipping its mass-produced model of the Librem 5. Much like with their Librem laptops, the Librem 5 features external hardware kill switches for both the cellular modem and Wi-Fi and Bluetooth connections. Right. And this is what they call their production model. So this is the one that shouldn't have rattly parts. This is the one that should be going to a majority of the backers. The Kickstarter, I think, was 2017. So this has been a little while in the making. And what we've kind of seen during this time is Pine64 came along and lapped them. But notably... Purism ended up developing sort of an ecosystem of mobile technology, which may end up being their most significant contribution here. They invested heavily into bringing Posh, which is a form factor, you know, desktop UI, uh, Lib Handy, um, Squawk, Squawk Bar, uh, was a Squeak Board, I think it was called. I can't remember exactly, but they brought a couple of particularly nice applications in this adaptive UI for GTK and some of their desktop technologies over the mobile space that projects like PinePhone and others can take advantage of. Right. It's sort of been a development board, if you will, for some of these technologies, even if most folks haven't actually got a Librem 5 just yet. I mean, I'm a little underwhelmed and disappointed um, just in the whole thing. So after all of this time, after all of this years of hard work, we got this sort of unceremonious blog post, kind of a quick and tidy blog post. Like we've reached this milestone that we've been promising for all these years 
And you don't really see like you haven't seen like YouTube seated with some development units or you don't see a ton of people posting their pictures of receiving them. You do see some, though. So it does seem to be getting out in people's hands this time. That's nice. I mean, if we remember, we were all kind of surprised and disappointed when it turned out. No, they still needed more processing that they hadn't launched with the mass produced model. But they're not taking the victory lap, I would expect. I wonder if the victory wasn't as sweet as they were expecting because um, Todd, the Todd Weaver, the founder and CEO of Purism, he just has kind of like a PS little addendum, a single paragraph little addendum to the blog post announcing the launch. Um, and they tout features that, well, frankly, PinePhone has now, like convergence and kill switches, which when they announced the Librem 5 were kind of a cutting edge idea, right. but have already been implemented by somebody else now. And now we also see Dell is looking at implementing kill switches in Dell laptops, too. So, again, kind of taking some of their unique value there. I wonder what it's like now after all these years of the Kickstarter and here we are with the production model. I wonder, is the Purism team celebrating this victory? Because it's notable. They finally got this thing shipping. Yeah, maybe it has a, you know, a kind of a big chonky form factor. And yeah, maybe it has an IoT CPU that's kind of a killer on the battery life, but they have achieved actually creating something that seemed nearly impossible. And that is a free Linux running phone that, I mean, it's, it's getting close to a usable standpoint. When I saw some of the videos that they released that to my eye didn't seem to be edited, seemed to actually be performing quite well. Like the UI may have even had some sort of video acceleration. Yeah. And they've clearly put in a lot of work over the years. It's a non-trivial project. It seems like it's gotten to a pretty good state. And yet, as as a company, they're not really projecting much of a win here. Um, and I I say that's too bad. I, I say tip of the hat to them. It's impressive. It took a lot longer than we'd like to see. You know, they raised $2.2 million. People were really, really uh, hopeful from the sort of build from scratch following an open source free software ethos. It doesn't run Android. doesn't run iOS. It's running their pure OS. And you could probably conceivably flash it with other things. I think I'll be curious to see do we get a new version? You know, they've spent a lot of time figuring out some of the manufacturing sides, getting the base software layer working. But is the what has happened with the Librem 5, does that put them in a place where folks want to see what they can do on a second model? you got to figure, as a team, as they're building this thing, it's the entire times, it's learning new things, the entire yeah. process, right? It's a learning experience. And so when you get to the end of it, you you know how to build a phone now, and you got to look at that and go, well, we could build something so much better now. They have to, as a team, be thinking, what's the Librem 6 look like or something like that? Um, and that could be where it gets really interesting because now you've got an experienced team. You have yet another iteration of the software that lands on a new iteration of the hardware. Right. They can catch up a little. The pipeline is not going to be quite as long. That means so the final product will be a little closer to what you might expect. If I had an ideal scenario, it would be that Purism takes this victory, as it seems to be, and is able to kind of own the higher end of the free phone market. Imagine if we had a scenario where there was a kind of Cadillac free phone that had all the latest cutting edge features. Maybe a decent camera. Yeah. And then you have like the Pine phone that, I mean, they could differentiate there and have multiple products too, but you had a Pine phone that was $200 or less, a real development hacker kit that you could throw any OS on. And it really was a, a hardware platform to showcase free software. And Purism could really kind of focus on that high-end phone with an integrated software stack approach that we see from other companies. Right. You want a, you want a premium phone, but you want one that's privacy-focused. I'd love to see that. I, I, I think how amazing would it be, say, four or five years down the road, you're looking at this and you're going, hmm, what should I get? A Librem 7 or a Librem 8 or, you know, 
the Pine 64 version 6 or whatever it would be at that point. Like, which one should I get? They're both really a great option. Wouldn't that be nice? Because we're getting to that point with Linux laptops now. We are. I mean, it's surprising to say a little bit, mm-hmm. but we really are. So maybe it's possible. Um, I congratulate to Congratulations to Todd and his team on uh, shipping the production hardware. I also even saw... Uh, reports of like super responsive support from Purism. Somebody had an issue where they couldn't get their new, newly re- re- received production quote unquote model Librem Five. It wouldn't charge. There was an issue like something about using like USB C to C or something. So I guess Purism support got right back to them right away and told them just use a C to A cable and it'll charge no problem. Uh, interesting. Problem solved. His new phone's charging and he, like he's you know he's up and playing with it. Well, those are the kind of steps they'll need to get right if there's a bright future ahead. Linux.ting.com. The next generation of Ting Mobile is here, and I have been waiting to tell you guys about this. You know, I'm a long-time fan of Ting, and they just made things so much better. You can get talk and text for just 10 bucks a month, data plans starting at just $15, and unlimited starting at 45 So whether you use 2 or 20 gigabytes a month, there's a perfect Ting plan for you and your family. And no need to worry. Everything we love about Ting is staying the same. You still get access to Ting's award-winning customer service. I rave about them all the time. You still get access to nationwide LTE and 5G coverage. Plus, the number one thing we all love, no contracts ever. You just get more choice now. Ting Mobile customers can now choose from three different plans based on their data needs. And you know, it's really simple to switch to Ting. Pretty much any phone will work, from the latest iPhone to any Android phone you can pretty much think of that's modern. And even a few surprises, too. You could check out phones they have directly. But just start by going to linux.ting.com. Check your current phone. See if that'll work. Create an account, pick the plan that's right for you, and then Ting will send you a SIM card. You pop that in your phone, and you activate it in minutes. Cutting your phone bill in half has never been easier with Ting Mobile's brand new plans. There's never been a better time to try Ting. So bring your phone or get a brand new one. Just start by going to linux.ting.com. Choose smarter. Choose Ting Mobile. They really did this right. Everything you love and expect from Ting Mobile remains the same, while you can also get all this great new stuff. No no contracts, top-notch account tools, great dashboard, great customer service. You can even bring your own phone if it's working for you. And now plans that will fit your needs. The next generation of Ting means there's literally never been a better time to try Ting Mobile. Just go to linux.ting.com and a big thank you and a big congratulations to Ting for their big upgrades. These are really great to see and it's great to give you guys the opportunity to try it. linux.ting.com Since the layoffs at Mozilla earlier this year and with some Mozilla projects seemingly in jeopardy, it's nice to see some good news about Servo which this week announced it's heading off to the Linux Foundation. Right. This is really nice to see. We were kind of wondering because Servo holds a special place in a lot of our hearts. Its mission is to provide an independent, modular, embeddable web engine that's written in Rust. And the great thing about it is since its creation in 2012, it's pretty successfully contributed to new web standards and specifications, and it's kind of made a dent in the web universe in a short time. And we really didn't want to see that go away. Yeah, it's been an important aspect where, you know, the folks at Mozilla, at least previously, could experiment in what the future of browsers might look like. Yeah. Now, this move does come with other changes, in particular in project governance. The Servo project will be gaining a board and a technical steering committee to help guide the project's future. I'm not so sure how I'm feeling about this. You don't think that's what they needed? 
Well, um, I think Servo was a engineer-led, technology-first group that was building some really impressive stuff that was leading by example. And I don't generally see that kind of outcome from something that's designed by committee. And that's essentially what we're transitioning to is something that was engineer-led to something that will now be committee-led. Do you wonder, is this just how the Linux Foundation runs their project and that's why these changes are happening? Or if, or if there was some interest from the project as well? Or is this in a response to a hole that was being filled by Mozilla in some capacity and now they're just formalizing it as a governance structure? Because you think about it, if they were part of a company, there's a governance structure as part of that company that manages certain stuff. Right, right. Either way, I'm not thrilled with this news. Uh, I was kind of hoping for a future where um, maybe like the go-to embedded web browser on the GNOME desktop would be servo-powered. Wouldn't that be nice? I mean, besides just being in Rust. Yeah, and, and I also really like seeing something else that's new and innovative that could be competitive potentially with WebKit in certain use cases in certain applications. And uh, it doesn't necessarily take any of that away from servo, but I do kind of worry about stagnation. Um, but we'll see. I'm also curious, you know, what, what will the adoption look like? Will that be improved now that they've split from Mozilla? Or will it just make things more difficult? You know, previously the Firefox and Servo teams were kind of connected right at the hip. Now there's a little more separation. Will they still be pulling in good ideas from Servo into the next generation of Firefox? You do wonder, right? Because you don't want to see Firefox's cutting-edge features take a hit as a result. No, you know, I mean, say what you will about Firefox, it, it oftentimes is a great web browser. And part of that has been some of the neat ideas that were developed in Servo. The flip side, though, you, you just said it a moment ago, and I, I wonder if there isn't something to it. And that is by, by being part of the Linux Foundation and not part of Mozilla, they've essentially become vendor neutral. And that could be a driver for adoption. Sure, right? If there's some other folks out there who adopt Servo, who help build it and use it, well, they could take the project in a whole new direction. Well, the Epiphany maintainer on GNOME is reminding us this week why having an independent voice in the standards discussion is so important and just having some additional leverage on the web. January 4th, 2021, something major is happening. Google is blocking all sign-ins to Google accounts from embedded browser frameworks, things like Electron, and potentially WebKit and WebKit-adjacent browsers, which is why the Epiphany Maintainer is bringing this up. Yeah, his summary goes something like this. Google will attempt to block logins from Chrome-embedded framework-based apps and other non-supported browsers. Presumably, non-supported browsers includes non-Safari WebKit. Considering how much time I spend trying to develop user agent quirks to suppress Google's unsupported browser warnings on Gmail, Google Docs, etc., I guess we will find out on January 4th. I can think of um, a lot of users that would be upset if all of a sudden they couldn't use their web browser to log into Google accounts. Google is trying to convince everyone, and that's why they, they made a, a blog post about this in August, they're trying to convince everyone to use OAuth. And... They're also going to put the uh, screws locked down on uh, Electron users. That's where the Chromium embedded framework, they're going to, if you're using an Electron app that may be like a mail app that uses Google Mail and signs into it inside embedded in the application, that's not going to work. They're going to have to do that, that thing where they forward you to Google and it pops up a little window. You log in and you say, allow all of the access. The issue is on GNOME Shell and on Plasma Desktop, that itself is an embedded browser, which Google may block. So that's really sticky. Yeah, I mean, Google's side of the story is that they're concerned about phishing attempts. When you've got an embedded browser window, well, it's got access to all your details if you're doing the sign-in process through Google. 
I can I can see why that might be a concern, but it's a little bit of a catch-22 that you first have to change your user agent to, to get any of their sites to work in a reliable fashion, but then here they are saying, if you change your user agent and lie to us, we'll block you. Yeah, that's also grounds for getting blocked. And that's really a shame because, like, going back to Epiphany again, the developer there has just stopped declaring its Epiphany in its uh, user agent string for compatibility reasons. That's just it. Now, I think if they were willing to keep that in there, you know, from Google's perspective, they're not trying to block major supported browsers. In fact, they call it out that they will continue to support, you know, things like Firefox. But I think they're missing the point that for many of their applications, that's a substandard experience already. Michael um, summarizes this email that he's uh, sent to the WebKit developer list trying to just remind everybody about this impending doom. He says, what should WebKit do about this? He goes on to say, I don't know. Nothing has happened yet, so I guess we could wait and see what happens on January 4th. Maybe this won't affect us at all. But my fear is that January 4th will arrive, we will be blocked, and then more user agent quirks and fixes will not work. And even if WebKit is not blocked, we can be confident that on January 4th, we will see a sad day for browser diversity. That's just it. This is a terrible reminder, regardless of what happens, that Google controls a whole bunch of the internet and the way you get to the internet. It's not how it's supposed to work, man. It's not how the web works. Not my web. No way. <laughs> so we'll see what happens. January 4th is the deadline. And um, like I like to say on this program, we'll keep an eye on it. And that's why you should head over to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get those future episodes. And while you're there, go over to the contact page. There's a link at the top of the site and send us your feedback on the show. Also, check out selfhosted.show slash 32. We tried out a self-hosted Google Photos replacement that actually works. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. Thanks for joining us, and we will see you next week. Next week.